so glad that you are here to worship with us. I'm Matthew. I'm one of the pastors of the church. And uh, if you haven't heard um, me talk about this, uh, let me remind you, I got to spend five weeks uh, with my family out in Colorado, uh, helping to lead what we call leadership training. So there's about, yeah, there we go. <laughs> there's about um, 120 college students from about 10 or 15 different campuses, like ours, churches like ours on college campuses. And we have 20 students from BGSU who are out there getting trained on what it means and what it looks like to be a leader for Jesus and his kingdom. And so that's super exciting. And so I got to go out there and uh, I've been thinking about the students because I think today they leave to head home or tomorrow. Sometime in the next few days, they are coming back uh, to wherever they are. And then a lot of them will be joining us at the Blitz conference that you heard Brian talking about. So thinking about LT students, thinking about ending the Proverbs series that we've been in all summer, thinking about wisdom and living wisely. And I had this memory of a time when I was exceedingly unwise while at LT. So one of the first things they tell you when you get to Colorado and you sit through the orientations um, from the YMCA of the Rockies, which is our partner, our host while we're out there, is animal safety, how to interact appropriately with wildlife. And when they talk about bears, the first thing they say is never run from a bear because a bear will think that you're something that it should eat then, right? So don't run from the bears, just, you know, like back away, be large, whatever. And so I went on a, on a walk, went to go spend time with the Lord one day, didn't tell anyone where I was going, didn't, didn't, no one on the planet knew where I was. And I decided to go for a walk, and I just ventured around through the Y, sort of near Rocky Mountain National Park, and I sat with my back to kind of like this cliff, and there was a river down below. I thought this would be a fantastic place to read my Bible and journal and spend time with God. And I do this thing when I am out in nature. Maybe you guys do this too, but I, I pray sort of this little frivolous prayer. God, if I could just see some wildlife, that'd be pretty sweet. You know, like not necessary. But a little bonus, you know, if you want to show up in that way, I would really appreciate that. I do it at Winter Garden all the time when I see deer. So, um, but I, I prayed that prayer, and so I'm sitting there reading the Psalms. I look up, and across the river, like hundreds of yards away, I see a bear. And I'm like, yes, this is sweet. Get out my phone. I'm trying to zoom in, but it's like so far away, it's hard to see. And it's not really doing much, it's just kind of wandering, and it's so far away that I'm like, I need to get back to my devotional time. So I put my head down, and I'm reading, and I'm looking. The next time I look up, the bear has crossed the river, so now he's on my side. Did you know that bears can actually cross rivers? Um, And so they did that, he did it, and I was like, oh my gosh. But I really wanted to get good photos for my kids, who are beautifully sitting all right up there. And uh, so I'm hiding behind this tree, and the bear is still a solid, like, 100, 150 yards away. And so I'm taking video and pictures and all this kind of stuff. And then the bear keeps getting closer and closer and closer. And at some point, I have this drastic, devastating revelation. I'm in, like, the death territory (laughs) of this bear. I'm in the death realm. Um, I don't know if that's actually true. But it felt like it. And so I decided in that moment 
to not do what I was supposed to do. Because I, I know that you're not supposed to run from bears, but I also knew that I was the 2000 Northwest Ohio Athletic League Conference champion in the 100-meter <laughs> dash, okay? And so I knew that there was this dirt road that people would walk on and that no bear would attack a person on a dirt road. So I thought as long as I could get to the dirt road, I would be fine. And so I waited till he wasn't looking. I don't know if he was ever looking at me, but I waited till he wasn't looking and I just booked it and I started sprinting and I realized that I wasn't 18 years old anymore. I had exercise-induced asthma uh, attack and I just took like four hours to start breathing properly again. Um, exceedingly unwise. And I tell that story only to make you laugh and because I'm thinking of LT and I'm thinking about wisdom. So there you go. Um, moral of the story, don't run from a bear. Um, I don't know. I was running so fast that I, I wouldn't know if the bear was chasing me. Um, okay, so LT, let me talk a little bit about LT, the program, again, some of you have heard me talk about it. I really do think that for the, our 20 students who are out there right now, it is a life-changing summer. We saw it in our time out there. It's continued on after we left. Spiritual breakthroughs, students walking in maturity and wisdom. Faith is being forged in the hearts of these young people. I really believe this, and if you've known people who have gone to an LT before, you'll hear them talk about this. I really believe that when these young people tell the story of their faith to their kids and then to their kids' kids, I think most of them will talk about their summer at LT as a huge part of that. Every time we send students out there, their lives just get turned upside down in the best possible way. But here's what I've learned, having been out there a handful of times and seeing students do it now for you know, a decade and a half. It's really not about the mountaintop experience. And trust me, the students are literally on mountaintops. They're hiking mountains all the time. The beauty of the landscape, the, the packed worship facility, and the, the singing, and the groups, and the teachings, those things are all awesome and amazing. But the power of the leadership training program is actually in all the little things that our students are doing. The things that we probably would not think of first that are happening out there, like I see students do this all the time, waking up an hour before work to spend time with the Lord in the Word. The decision to each day have a servant's heart when they're working gloriously unglamorous jobs, most of them in dining services, sometimes having to feed thousands of guests, or in housekeeping. It's in the reflecting on what life ought to be about in the quiet moments. It's the choices that they make to resist the temptation to hide and instead bring their issues, bring their sin and their brokenness into the light. It's all of these little decisions, these hundreds, not thousands of little decisions that they make all summer long. Yes, the mountains are awesome. Yes, the program is amazing, but it's all just a backdrop to these little decisions to walk in obedience to Jesus, to live with him at the center of their lives. I think a lot of us, myself included, we want the mountaintop experience, and that's fine. I don't think there's anything wrong with desiring to have that kind of connection, that season or that experience with God, but those moments are only ever going to be helpful to the extent that they begin to shape and transform every day after. 
the moments that follow. Whatever kind of mountaintop experience maybe you've had in your life, spiritually, its power was in its ability to set the trajectory for your future. That's what makes those moments so amazing. Because we all eventually come down off the so-called mountains, right? And it's a reminder to us that the work of being sanctified, of being made more like Jesus, is a marathon. It is a day-by-day, moment-by-moment thing over the long haul. We receive it as a gift from God as we live in communion with him each moment. It's what Eugene Peterson, a famous author and pastor, called a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. And the Proverbs, where we've been camping out all summer, invite us into that long obedience. All of these little bite-sized commands about walking in wisdom, they're giving us a vision for life and how we should live every day in each moment in the regular, the average, the typical, the mundane. But more than that, they remind us when we zoom out that there is a massive transformation that needs to happen inside of our hearts. As we've been going through this series all summer, talking about these little nuggets of wisdom that the Proverbs, if you've been with us, you know they read just like these little zingers, these one-liners on how we ought to live our lives. The, the passage from the New Testament that I cannot get out of my mind is Romans 12.2, which says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Do not be transformed, or do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There are so many of these Proverbs that we've studied that are here in this book that run contrary to our culture. Have you noticed that? We've mentioned this passage a few times over the last couple months, but Proverbs 14.12 reads, There is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. There is a way, right? There is a whole set of beliefs and assumptions and ideals and so-called truths that just dominate in our culture that we're told that if we follow those, if we chase after those, that we will have life that seem right to us, right? If I do this, if I live by the assumptions and the ideals, the desires, the beliefs of this culture, that then I will have life. And the Proverbs tell us that it seems like it could be right, but in the end, it's deadly and it leads to death. And so it does not work. Here's what I really want us to grasp as we come to the end of a long summer in the Proverbs. It does not work to simply resolve to walk in wisdom. To say, okay, there's a hundred of these, hundreds of these in this book. I'm going to go live all of those. It won't work without first and foremost inviting the kind of transformation of our hearts and our minds that's necessary to have any chance of obeying the Proverbs. Does that make sense? We cannot just say, we're going to muscle our way through this. We're going to read them. We're going to make it our mission to go out and do it unless something deeper is happening inside of us. If the wisdom of this world is the air that we breathe, and I believe it is, then we have to relinquish. We have to get out of that air and breathe new air somehow. An exchange must happen. Romans 12.2 calls that the renewing of our minds. 
And I think that's the real beauty of the Proverbs, that they point past themselves to this deeper work that God is wanting to do in us. They wake us up from our spiritual slumber, and they remind us that there is so much more that God wants to accomplish in us. There's a transformation of our hearts and our minds awaiting us. As we wrap up a whole summer in this book, we are reminded afresh that to walk with God in this life means that we have to embrace this renewal. We have to embrace this transformation. It is not enough to claim to believe it. Oh yeah, I believe that that's true. I believe that that would be the way of wisdom. I believe that that would be the path to abundant life, but then not actually go out and do it. It's not enough. We have to allow, listen to this, God to recalibrate our minds and reset the desires of our hearts. Because we swim in all these competing visions of life, we have to allow God to recalibrate our minds and to reset the desire of our hearts. So what I want to do today is I want to end the series by going to Jesus. I want to end with the words of Jesus to a, a part in the Scriptures in the New Testament where His words read like the Proverbs, where what comes out of His mouth sounds like the Proverbs. And of course, Jesus would have been saturated in the knowledge of the Proverbs and all of what we call the Old Testament. There are these short statements that pack a punch, and they offer us a vision of a life well lived. Now, I want to go to Jesus for two reasons. Number one, all of Scripture points to Jesus. Everything. Remember on that road to Emmaus, Jesus is walking with those men. They don't know who he is, and he explains to them how everything that they've encountered, the people of God throughout all of history, is pointing to him. And so ultimately, as we read the Proverbs, we read with an eye to Jesus, who lived the Proverbs perfectly. The second reason is because I think we will find in his words that same invitation that we find in the Proverbs to renew our minds. And so turn with me, we're going to go to the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, the blessed ours. The promise of the Proverbs is that fullness of life is found when we walk in wisdom. The Beatitudes stand on that same conviction. Fullness of life is found when we walk in wisdom. So Matthew chapter 5, we'll start in verse 1 and read down through verse 10. Now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Guys, this is the vision of a life transformed by God. To define blessing in this way is the vision of a life well lived. The Beatitudes are not like th this list of commands that we follow to get into the kingdom. The Beatitudes are a, a vision, a picture of what happens to us when we live in the kingdom. 
It's a picture of what happens, the kind of transformation that the Holy Spirit works in us that we start to reorder and redefine and recalibrate ourselves, and this is what happens. And what I want to do is I want to look at each of those little blessed R's, and I want to pay close attention to how the vision set there contrasts with the wisdom of our world. And I want us to listen for the invitation from Jesus to rethink, to renew, to redefine. Verse 3, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our world tells us to boast in who we are and what we have. Jesus invites us to remember that we are bankrupt outside of him that we bring nothing into this world, that we leave with nothing, that all that we have is a grace from him. We lay no claim to our own maturity, to our own salvation, to anything outside of him. To be poor in spirit means to be desperate, always in need of God. And that runs so contrary to our world, right? Our world of self-assurance. No one wants to admit their need, right? It's seen as weakness. We run in the opposite directions. We say, look at me, look at who I am, look at what I have. But Jesus says that the defining characteristic, all the ones that follow hang on this one. This is the centerpiece. Jesus says the defining characteristic of a disciple is to be humble and needy and desperate for him. I think of what we talked about, I think, early on in this series. Proverbs 3, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Verse 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Right? Our world tells us, escape. Arrange your life. Manufacture your life so that there is no pain, no suffering. Jesus invites us to find him in the pain that will inevitably come, in the struggle, in the suffering. Pain is too awkward in our world, right? It's too, makes us too vulnerable. It's best to avoid it. And when we cannot avoid it, we find stuff to medicate. Sometimes that stuff is really good stuff. And it looks on the outside like really moral and religious and godly. But what's happening is we are hiding. We are avoiding. We are medicating our pain. Sometimes we just run to things that we know in our heart of hearts are evil and wrong. Promise of Jesus here is astounding. He says, it is in the pain that we experience him. And because for the disciple of Jesus, what we want more than anything is him, we remain, we stay, we endure so that we get him. Think of Proverbs 17.3, the crucible for silver and the furnace for gold, but the Lord tests the heart. Think about a furnace, right? Think about the crucible Things are being bent and shaped, and it's a, it'd be a painful experience, right? And that is what the Lord is doing in our lives, through our struggles, through our pain. He is shaping us and molding us. The world says run. Jesus says remain. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. What does our world tell us? Be impressive. Make a name for yourself. Boast. Jesus invites us to forget about ourselves. Not to belittle ourselves, but to just forget about ourselves. To be focused on him and to be focused on others. World says, make a name for yourself. Stand out. 
grab as much attention as you can, right? That is the air that we breathe. Jesus says, listen, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Be like me. Follow me and you will become gentle and lowly. Verse 6, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Our world tells us, chase after your desires. Name them and claim them. Go get them, right? Whatever you define as fulfilling, as the path to getting to where you want to be, money, perfect job, spouse, social status, whatever it is, name those things and go out and get them, and you'll be satisfied. Jesus says, love the things that I love. Cherish the things that I cherish, and there you will find abundant life. Do you see, are you beginning to see just how counter-cultural this is? That if we are going to live the Proverbs, if we're going to live this life, if we're going to live the Beatitudes, we are going to run contrary to the current of our world. Verse 7, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Our world tells us what? Get even. Jesus invites us to forgive and forget. Verse 8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Our world tells us, whatever it is, you can just fake it. Just fake your way through it. And Jesus says, no, no, you can't fake it. I'm trying to create in you a purity, uh, an an integrity, an honesty. Verse 9, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Our world tells us, take a side and find the enemy and destroy them. Side. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be people of conviction. I'm just saying what happens is we demonize, we villainize, we take a side, find an enemy, and we make it our mission to destroy them. Jesus invites us to love everyone and to fight for peace. And I'm not sure that there's a more pressing and pertinent character quality needed in the church today than this. Because in our zeal in the church, in our zeal for truth, we have forgotten to love like the one who is himself truth. We have forgotten to love like the one who is himself truth. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Our world tells us what? Suffering, especially suffering for your faith, is a total waste. Don't do that with your life. Jesus invites us to see it as the highest honor to suffer for him. I can't help when I read the Proverbs, when I go to the Beatitudes, I come to the end and I just think there is something enormous that needs to happen inside of me if I have any hope to live this way. If I have any hope to define life this way, something huge has to happen, right? We come and we realize that Christianity is so much more than intellectually agreeing with some theological claims. That this long obedience that we are being called into will last our entire lifetime. And that God wants to transform us. This definition of life is life. And it's life because it's the life of Jesus himself. Jesus, fully God, fully human, he lived the perfect human life. He is the epitome of an abundant life. Jesus was the divine embodiment, is the divine embodiment of the Beatitudes. You want to know what it looks like to live this way? Jesus. He is, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, 
the power and the wisdom of God. All the Proverbs, the obedience, the faithfulness, the honoring of all the Proverbs are swallowed up in the life of Jesus. To want to live with this vision of life is to want Jesus. And the only way that we will do it is if we treasure him above all else. You guys know this, right? We, we are not driven by what we know. We are driven by what we love. That's why you can have in the church people who know a lot of stuff, who can quote theology, who can quote their Bibles, right? Who lead Sunday school classes, who have had ministry experiences. They know a ton of stuff, but their lives don't reflect the life of Jesus. They lack the character. Sometimes in their sin, they leave a path of destruction behind them. We are not driven by what we know. We are driven by what we love. Psalm 73, 25 says, Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. There is no way, and again, this is what I'm wanting us to really grasp at the end of a whole summer in Proverbs. There is no muscling your way into this kind of transformation. There is no vowing to make a personal decision to live with a renewed mind in your own power. It only happens when we fix our eyes on Jesus. When we trust in our minds and in our hearts that what he wants for us is life. Hebrews 12.2 says that we will run the race with perseverance when our eyes are fixed on him. Day after day, in the moments, the hundreds, the thousands of moments and decisions and opportunities and the things that life throws at us, if we fix our eyes on Jesus and we ask the Holy Spirit to guide and to direct us, that's our only hope. The question that I want us to wrestle with as we walk out of here today is when we see this vision of life, this definition of an abundant life, of a life of wisdom and joy, set out in the Proverbs and then you know, embodied in Jesus' life and in his teaching, do we see this vision of life as a threat to our joy or as the only way to it? I mean, honestly, take an inventory, take an assessment, take the next few hours, take this upcoming week and really wrestle with that. You look through the Proverbs and how they define what life is. And what abundance is, you look at Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount and the Beatitudes and you ask yourself, do I see that as a threat? Like if I were to live this way, I don't want anything to do with that. Or do you see it as the only way to life? The difference in how we'll answer that question is where our eyes are looking. If we're looking around, if we're chasing the things of this world, right, we're going to see it as a threat. But if we are fixed on Jesus, if our eyes are on him, if we're asking with him, if we're being poor in spirit and we're asking, pleading, God, give me, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, the ability to see Jesus. Because here's, here it is. This is the ballgame. When our eyes are fixed on Jesus, when we see him, we want him. When we see him, we want him. We want to live for him. I want to end with this. Because I think it's really important. 
there's a way of hearing a teaching like this that would actually cause you to disobey and dishonor everything I just said. <laughs> everything that's in the Beatitudes. There's a way of hearing, well, Jesus invites us to this, but the world says this, or Jesus said this, and the world says this. There's a way of hearing that will actually end up making you arrogant and self-righteous and the kind of person that nobody wants to be around. May that not be so of us, right? There is a way that we end up becoming the worst of humanity. And we have this us versus them mentality. But we have to remember that all that Jesus did, all of who he is, is for the sake of the world. The world that he created, that he loves, that he will one day return to restore to rights for all of eternity. And I just wonder, what would happen in this city? What would happen on our campus? What would happen in our families and in our friendships and in our relationships if we chose to fix our eyes on Jesus and define life this way. And we walk that counter-cultural journey with him. What kind of witness would we have? What kind of impact would we have in the lives of the people around us? May we say yes to Jesus today for all the days that follow. Would you pray with me?